0: Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be This is a review of last quarter, the second quarter of 2023, and our thoughts on what is coming in the third quarter of 2023. I'm joined here by Hao Dang, and we're going to go through our quarterly newsletter, which will be released here in the next couple of days. And that goes in conjunction with this YouTube video and podcast, so that everybody can read, listen, hear, whatever method of digestion that they like with this content. Before we get started here, I need to remind everybody that this information is meant to be a commentary regarding Consiliar Wealth Advisors' views on the relative attractiveness of different areas of the market, contrasted with our current asset allocation strategy for the near term, which is considered to be 12 to 18 months. These views are always made in the context of a well-diversified portfolio and are not meant to be a recommendation to buy into or sell out of a particular area of the market, or any stocks that you might hear us discuss on today's recording. These views can and will change as new information becomes available, and we will periodically update this brief to keep you and everyone informed of changes. On today's episode, we will talk about the magnificent seven have led the way this last quarter, why tech's profits are now costing double the rest of the market, Interest rates, I know, broken record. we got to touch on interest rates. And how international stocks have been a pretty good diversifier this year in the face of not such great news, but they've been a good place to be so far. How, welcome. It's nice to see you. Hello. Let's go ahead and get started with the Magnificent Seven. Seems to be top of news right now. So kick us off. What's going on with those stocks and... How are they related to the market right now?
1: Yes, it's the seven biggest tech stocks by market weight or market cap, and that's what's driving the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ and even the Dow Jones Industrial. So uh, if you include Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Google, Tesla, NVIDIA, and Meta, you have the biggest by weight in terms of sheer company size, in the S&P 500. So combined, those seven companies account for 30% of the S&P passive index. Hmm. And as they grow bigger, they should gain more outside share of the S&P and their returns. So uh, as as people pay attention to the markets, S&P is up nearly 20%, if not over after today's close. It's July 25th when we're recording this. And if we combine these seven companies, they're up over 98% because we created um, our own portfolio of the seven companies. So 98% versus the 20% S and P right. And they're driving the market returns. Again, we're not saying they're the best performers because the three of them NVIDIA, Meta and Tesla are the top, but You'd have to go down to number 18 to get to the next one in the list, which is Amazon. So there's plenty of other companies that have done uh, better than the majority of the list, but they're not big enough that's, to really push the index around. So we'll get into market cap weighting and what you're paying for that. So what you're paying for is a share of company's profits, right? That's when you're buying a stock... Ultimately, that should be a a right to that company's future profits, if that makes sense. Even if it's just one share, you get 0.001% of that share of the profits year in, year out. And typically, people won't pay one-to-one, meaning to get $1 in profit back, I'm not paying a dollar. Typically, I'm paying $20 for the right to get $1 in profit for the next year, year after that, for as long as they hold the stock. Does that make sense?
0: And that's what's referred to as the P.E. ratio, or the price-to-earnings ratio, correct?
1: Correct, yeah. So every company is not created equal in that sense because some companies can grow their profits at a faster rate, Hmm. and I'm paying a premium for those companies. So if we broke down the P.E. ratio, the price-to-earnings ratio for the seven companies here, they are double that we're paying 30 times earnings forward earnings right compared to the rest of the market the other 493 stocks which is 15 times earnings so what that's saying is i'm paying 30 times the premium to get a dollar of profit back from apple microsoft amazon and so on versus the rest of the industry or the rest of the stock market so So i think with
0: that ultimately means is that the market is assuming or hoping or pricing in that those stocks will continue to grow at a really, really, or not those stocks, the profitability and the market share of those companies will continue to grow at a huge, huge rate in order to justify that valuation of double all the other companies. Do I have that correct?
1: That's correct. Yep. And to provide more context, historically going back 25 years, the average price to earnings ratio is about 13 times earnings.
0: <laughs> okay. So
1: the broad market is right on average.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's those magnificent seven that are relatively expensive.
0: And so that can lead to if that profitability growth changes or that you know the, the revenue growth changes because these companies are held up to some pretty huge guidance. Yeah, uh, as we know, you know if you look at an earnings report for Kroger or Johnson Johnson, the revenue growth on those is a lot, lo- a lot different than what, say, Tesla or Amazon is being held to on their earnings calls. So I think what, what I'm hearing here and what you're saying is that if those companies did see a slowdown, and that doesn't mean a major slowdown. It could even just be a slight downtick yeah. in their otherwise really quite amazing profitability. We could see that valuation dramatically come down because now the market is pricing in not 30, but maybe 25 times or 20 times, for example, just given that new information on earnings.
1: Yeah, and believe it or not, even if that came down to 20 times earnings, that's still a relatively expensive company Yeah, totally. compared to the market. So it shows how how wide the expectations are, how high the expectations are for those seven companies.
0: So basically we have 30% of the S&P 500 that we're paying double the price for, and then we have 70% of the S&P that we're paying about average for. That's kind of in sum where it lands. Yep. Interesting, okay. Um, You have some interesting data here on the equal weight S&P. So let's describe market cap. Uh, What does that mean for how the S&P is designed? And then what is the equal weight S&P uh, mean.
1: Yes, I mentioned how the breakup of the S and P, as we know it, like the SPY index or the IVV ETF, they're broken up by cap weight, meaning the bigger companies like Apple, the three trillion dollars worth, get, I think, seven percent of the entire index. So if you're buying the index, you're not getting five hundred shares sliced up evenly. Mm-hmm. You're getting seven shares. cover a third of your investment, and then 493 other shares of other companies to cover the remaining 70%. -hmm. So uh, going through the equal weight, if we took that shift in calculation, meaning we are splitting the money equally 500 ways versus giving the biggest companies the biggest share, equal weight, if that investment, which does exist, is up 7.4%, which is about half of what the, the S&P 500 has done this year. That's because you're giving less weight to the Apples, the NVIDIAs, and the Metas of the of the index mm-hmm. and making it more, I guess, equitable. Mm-hmm.
0: So to be clear, uh, market cap weighted index is common and it's not necessarily a bad thing. We're just trying to point out that because these largest companies have continued to get larger and larger, they're now garnering a larger and larger share Of the S&P 500, so again, seven companies, uh, 30% of the index, 493 companies, 70% of the index, like that's, that's big. So we're just trying to point out that um, the way that this works by design is let's say that one company takes another company's market share and the company that's winning that business is growing in size. That's actually okay, right? You own more of that company that's going up. That's a market cap weighted index. That's, that's totally fine. We, you know, we want that to an extent. So we're just trying to point out how this works, not necessarily saying it's good or bad Bad or or different.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly.
0: And then uh, you had some interesting data here on year-to-date returns. I posted this on LinkedIn for for those that are following me or saw this. Um, So you would think that these large seven companies are all the best returns year-to-date, but they're actually not. And uh, I commented on how Carnival, Carnival Cruise Lines and Royal Caribbean, that's the number four And number five, best performing stocks this year. Other notable areas, builders. So Pulte Group is actually doing pretty well this year. And uh, other things like Align Technology and Broadcom and even Adobe, or how about General Electric? Those companies are all in the top 20 in performance this year. And the reason why you haven't really heard of them is because they're really, really small. So to Howe's point, with Meta, being the second best performer this year and Tesla being the third best, those two companies alone have buoyed a ton of influence on the market, NVIDIA being the best performer. Um, that's also another big company. Those two and three companies have pulled the market up a lot relative to, say, Royal Caribbean is up 100% this year, but the company is tiny relative to these other larger companies.
1: Yeah, Royal Cont- uh... Caribbean contributes 0.02% to the index. Ah, thanks. It's a $20 billion cruise line versus, you know, a trillion dollars for Meta. Hmm. So very, very small relative to the size, if that makes sense. So, yes, they've done extremely well, up over 100% this year, but very small impact to the index.
0: Okay, so what's our outlook with all of this? The Magnificent Seven and just what do we think is going to happen in the coming coming quarter.
1: I think what we're saying is first check how you're doing relative to the benchmark. If you are getting benchmark like returns and, um, we believe you should be better diversified than that. Mm -hmm. That means you're most likely concentrated into large tech, blue chip tech. And again, for reference last year, this group of seven, they were down 50% in Mm -hmm. 2022. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of it could be just getting gaining back what was lost last year, but those types of swings are very volatile for a portfolio. So first check diversification and see what you own. Um, look at the s and p, but look at the other indexes that you might be owning that have very similar overlay right so s and p versus the the NASDAQ versus the Russell one thousand. They own a lot of the same things and will move generally in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And Chris pointed out the NASDAQ was t- twice as good as the S&P this year, up 40%. It's just because they have a higher concentration of the Magnificent Seven.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, first check for that. The next one would be we think that the next leg, more pro- probable leg, would be you know, barring recession the The remaining 493 stocks start to participate. And I think we saw a little bit of that in, since May. Mm-hmm. And another part is these could pull back, right? These are lofty expectations. So with earnings, if there's any hiccup, meaning you do well but not as well as expected, there could be a severe pullback in any of these names. I don't know which ones. I'm not recommending anything here, But if you own all seven in high concentrations, that's something to watch out for.
0: So in sum, if your portfolio has done as well as the S&P or the NASDAQ, you probably aren't diversified. I think that's the main thing that I heard. And so our our generalization there would be by having those stocks run up so much more than the rest of the market or that, that index, you may have now exposed yourself to more risk than you otherwise were in, say, a short seven months ago. So it's just cause for a reevaluation to how much of your portfolio do you have in these areas should you take some of those profits and redeploy and diversify. Remember, sell high, buy low. That's the name of the game.
1: Yeah, oh. in this case, watch out for FOMO. If your portfolio isn't keeping up with s and I think you're fine. I, you own things that aren't as expensive, most likely.
0: Yeah, watch out for FOMO. That's a good quote. Yeah. I want to comment on one thing quickly here. The the NASDAQ 100 rebalanced yesterday on Monday, July 24th. And this was the second rebalance that it's ever done in its whole history. Um, the NASDAQ 100 is a passive index, but it had too large of a concentration in the largest seven stocks. So it has a rule that says that it can't have more than 50%, I believe is the rule, in, uh, in, a, in a small amount of stocks. So what happened here was um, the weight of, for example, Apple, and Microsoft are going to go down. Um, so, so Apple and Microsoft will still remain the largest holdings, but they're going to be reduced by roughly 4%. Um, the largest seven stocks are going to be reduced by 12%. So the largest seven stocks are currently 56% of the, uh, the NASDAQ. So remember, if you buy the NASDAQ 100, you now have 56% of your money in these large seven stocks. That's going to go from 56 to 44 um and Broadcom Broadcom is gonna go up because of course the money has to go somewhere. So Broadcom is going from uh uh about two and a half percent to three percent weight in the index. So just interesting that um even at the index level, because of these stocks have gone up so much relative to everything else, uh, even the index is actually causing a a a rebalance here. Yep. Yeah. All right, let's move on to interest rates. I know we're a broken record here. I feel like we talk about this every two weeks. What's going on with the Fed? Fed comes out this week. Uh, what have they done in the last number of months or this last quarter, and what do we think that they're going to do next quarter?
1: Yeah, they're m- widely expected to raise rates by another quarter of a percent, so 0.25% is pretty much l- locked into the futures market. And if you're going to go buy a CD or some kind of interest rate-sensitive product, it's most likely reflected of tomorrow's hike, right? So after tomorrow's hike, we believe that's the last one for the year. And barring any surprise uh, upside surprises to inflation, which, again, it's been trending down since last summer, and even in an upside surprise, it would have to be significant enough. So what what would drive a spike in inflation barring another supply chain pinch or – or injection of demand, which again we don't see that, especially the demand side. We don't see an injection uh, across the globe. So do we
0: think the Fed hikes on Wednesday by a quarter of a percent, and then again one more time, and then they're done. That's that's no, what you're saying. Not,
1: the Wednesday is the last one, and we think uh, the market is pricing in cuts relatively soon towards the end of the year. We do not agree there. We think most likely they will hike and then leave rates where they are got it. I think the Fed very much has the 70s on their mind and they do not want to rekindle or give inflation a chance to reignite.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Okay. Um international, it's been a decent year for international. Pretty good year. Let's just speak to that for a moment here uh, as we as we start to wrap up.
1: Yeah, good year in the markets for international, but not really good on the real economy there—they're—they're uh, mm-hmm. they're struggling with higher inflation, higher exposure to to energy, and obviously the Ukraine Russia conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, in spite of all that, it's done extremely well. It just shows you that having investments really everywhere is probably the the best place to be because you don't know what's going to do well, right? So the expectations of the U.S. doing this well were pretty low coming mm-hmm. into the year. I can't identify really anyone who is optimistic about the U.S. coming, and even less so in an international. And they they are probably the second-best-performing asset class if we were going to break it up behind the Magnificent Seven in terms of a big region.
0: Is that in part buoyed by the weakening of the dollar?
1: Yeah, the dollar weakened a little bit. It stabilized, but um, even if nothing materially changes in uh Europe or other developed markets if the dollar weakens those currencies suddenly get more val- valuable relative to us and then all of a sudden those those investments become more valuable given assuming everything else remains the same
0: so if the if the dollar weakens that benefits the US as an importer of goods do I have that correctly correct, mm-hmm. correct. And so that's in part where foreign stocks which are marked back to US dollar in our clients' portfolios benefit when they transfer back to US dollar. So that's what we mean when we when we explain that. Yeah. You know, the last thing I think it would be worth touching on here is regional banks. Regional banks were in the news last quarter a lot. What's going on? Have things stabilized there? Are 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 they still seeing deposits leave or just what's your read on regional banks and what do we think is gonna happen Between now and the end of the year,
1: a couple things. Uh, I think we're seeing the regulatory anticipation of heightened restrictions. Uh, We're seeing quite a few regional banks offer very high mortgage rates, which are pricing them themselves out of the industry, right, or Mm -hmm. the the sector, because big banks can offer, you know, we've seen five percent offered in this environment. Uh, Regional banks have had to raise their interest rates on mortgages to one. Address the risk of the, uh, the continual withdrawals, which have slowed, uh, even to a point where certain banks have reported uh, a gain in deposits, which is actually encouraging news. But they're anticipating a Basel III requirement, which raises their reserve requirement. Mm. So, big banks this earnings season have continued to eat regional banks' lunches, and I think they are going to see more regulatory pinches, and they're going to have to shore up their portfolios in terms of what loans are giving out.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in here on our Q2 review and Q3 outlook. Once again, this commentary will be coupled with our newsletter, which comes out here very soon. Um, you'll have a YouTube video, you'll have a podcast episode, and you'll have our written commentary, all of which will highlight what we talked about here today. So thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll catch you again next time.
1: Thank you, everyone.